Hello, and welcome to the Big Picture in Practice. Today, we're recording live from the Future Proof Conference in Huntington Beach, California. Our guest today is author and blogger, Tanya Hester. My name is Julie Willoughby, Head of Enterprise Sales at Morningstar. Joining me as my new co-host is Syl Flood, Senior Editorial Director at Morningstar. Syl, it's great to have you aboard. And now on to our conversation. Tanya Hester, author of two award-winning books, Work Optional, Retire Early, The Non-Penny-Pinching Way, and Wallet Activism, How to Use Every Dollar You Spend, Earn, and Save as a Force for Change, is best known for retiring from her career at the age of 38 after watching her dad get forced into early retirement by his disability, which she has inherited. Though her book, Work Optional, is geared toward nearly everyone, it was inspired by her desire to help others with disabilities retire on their own terms rather than be subjected to our insufficient disability safety net system. Tanya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So Tanya, for those in the audience that don't know about you, tell us about your journey and how you arrived here. I always describe my financial journey as extremely boring because I I very much am a believer in long-term indexing, you know, buy and hold and just let time pass. And it really does do the magic for you. But in terms of my journey to the book I know we're talking about today, Wallet Activism, I really have thought of myself as a lifelong activist on different levels. That was the career that I worked at before was political consulting. So working for candidates and causes that I really cared about. I also was a journalist before that. And now I'm sort of a very, very part-time journalist again, which is great. I can write about things that I think are important. And I realized as I was writing about all these different personal finance topics that align primarily to retirement, that there wasn't a lot of guidance out there for people who consider themselves values-based, you know, who want to make decisions aligned to the things that they care about, which we now know is a huge percentage of us. It's almost 90% of people want their financial choices to align to their values. And so I just had that great opportunity of being a retired person with a lot of free time and interest. And that really let me take on some of the hard questions that I think a lot of folks otherwise struggle to answer. I love answering the impossible questions. I, I find that really fun. We are going to spend most of our time talking about the new book, Mm -hmm. but of course, you're best known as a fire advocate. How has the coronavirus and its after effects changed the movement? Early in the pandemic, there was a lot of speculation that that was going to be the end of FIRE, which for those who aren't familiar, that's financial independence, retire early. It's a lot of folks who are looking to retire in their late 30s, 40s, sometimes, I mean, sometimes in their 20s. But there was a lot of belief that we were going to get the pandemic, we're going to get a big market crash, and that was going to pour water all over the fire movement. And I think we've seen just the opposite. We see a lot of press now about quiet quitting, you know, people who are attempting to do as little as possible as they can at work. Uh, You have the great resignation that we're still in, according to the data, but perhaps it's slowing a little bit. But I think that the pandemic really showed people that relying on your job for everything in your life is not a great idea. And that if you can try to build some financial security in for yourself, that is a really, really good thing. I think we're only going to see 
that accelerate, whether it looks exactly like FIRE or not, or whether it's just folks trying to have more financial security or have it at an earlier age or have more flexibility in their life or more work-life balance, I think we're going to see all of that accelerate unless we have a real kind of readjustment of the way that we work and pay people for work in our society. What are some things that as they attempt financial independence and retiring early, what are some things that people are doing right that you've seen I think that there are a lot of folks who view early retirement as just, they sort of use it to run away from their frustrations. And often they'll project a lot of troubles in their life onto their work and use it to run away from that. When I think if you plan correctly and you deal with your personal challenges that we all have, and you think about what you actually want your life to look like, you can avoid a lot of that boredom maybe that comes later or directionlessness. But I think the biggest thing that the FIRE movement does that is the part that I really love more than any other part is the focus on enough of understanding what is enough and stopping when you hit that point of not feeling the need to endlessly accumulate. And I think that you can look at that as just a very practical financial thing that it's a wonderful gift to say, okay, this is my point. Now I can go do what I want to do and money can be optional. Or you can actually view that as kind of a, a social justice or economic justice move because by more people leaving the workforce at an earlier age, it's actually freeing up more spots and more opportunities for others coming up behind. You know, it's much better to have people leaving at 40, 45, 50 than everybody hanging on to their title until they're 75 and no one can move up. So focusing on enough is, is a good thing on a lot of levels. A few years ago, you were quoted in the New York Times about the dominance of men mm -hmm. in the fire movement. Has that changed at all since that time? You know, I continue to believe that that was always a misconception. What it was is that men, especially white men in tech, which those in tech know that white men aren't even necessarily representative of tech, but that was who was getting the press. So if you looked at the stories on financial media or sometimes things like the Today Show, it was a lot of white men and many of them, if not most of them were married, but then their partner was not viewed as getting any credit for it. These were mostly hetero couples. My frustration was more with the absence of the voices, not with the absence of the actual women. And so I think we continue to see a lot of gender diversity and, you know, really folks from all walks of life, including many more income levels than you would expect, continue to be in the movement. But I think it's been a really good trend that we see more diversity in who is speaking for that movement now. So I'd love to see that trend continue. It's still not quite as diverse as the folks who actually are doing this of aiming to be work optional, but it's, it's good progress. So moving to wallet activism, you were asked a couple times at the book signing, what does it mean? And you joke that you answer it a little bit differently every time. <laughs> What's your answer right now? What is wallet activism? Wallet activism is recognizing and using your financial power in all its forms to create change that aligns to your values and doing it in ways that are impactful. My worldview is progressive. The book is written from that place, but someone came up and asked me, could I use this if I care about the dark side? And I said, yes, you could. <laughs> I hope you won't. But uh, whatever your beliefs are, it's really just a tool to think through what your values are that you'd wish to express through your financial choices and then gives you a whole menu of options for how you can do that. I think for everybody, you know, seeing that you actually have power in many more ways than you think is, is a really valuable thing and really empowering thing. What are some ways that advisors can engage with clients to uncover what they care about and what things are meaningful to them so that they can advise them along the lines of those interests? Yeah, you know, the first thing is I think just kind of changing your mindset to understand that 
money is political, you know, and, and we've tended in personal finance. I'm more on the media side, but I, I hear this from advisors too, that there's been this belief of like, well, we don't go there. You know, we, we yep. focus on this part. We just talk about the dollars and cents and look at the spreadsheets and we don't talk about the world outside, but that's not the reality of people's lives, including every single one of your clients and probably your own lives for advisors. Getting rid of that fear of touching it is really good. And hopefully everyone's heard here at Future Proof a few times on different panels of what a high percent of investors care about aligning their financial choices to their values. It's almost 90%. And we should expect that number to grow to pretty close to 100% in the coming years. It can be as simple as saying, are there particular issues that you really care about that you want to make sure are included in your plan or are excluded from your plan? But you can also do things like look beyond investments and say, okay, well, let's look at where your cash lives. You know, are you banking at a big bank that is one of the largest funders in the world of new fossil fuel projects? You know, we could switch you over to a different institution. People think it's only about equities and stock, and it's really a much broader array of options that you've got to share. In the book, you talk about living a zero waste lifestyle. I don't know if anyone here tries that, but what is that like? Um, well, to be clear, I don't live a zero waste lifestyle uh, because I tried it in, in earnest. And that's kind of the story I used to start the book that it's to me an emblem of how inaccessible a lot of the solutions are that we propose or we put all this burden on individuals and we say, okay, you have to be totally vegan and never eat a piece of bacon. You have to never get in a car. You have to shop zero waste and otherwise you're causing climate change and you should feel terrible about yourself. And we're not going to convince people that way. You know, we have to give people messages that are more accessible and feel doable for them. But we also, I think, just have to look at this in a more moderate way of what's actually sustainable. If we view our social change and environmental change activities as a diet, everyone knows how well diets work long-term. Um, you can't stay on them. So it's not sustainable. Not sustainable. <laughs> exactly. So we're looking for instead, you know, how can we reshape our lives in little ways, bit by bit, and look for more and not worry about perfection so that we instead build something we can sustain over the long-term and that we can talk with other folks about and not be on such a high pedestal because we're doing this crazy hard thing like zero waste uh, that they feel is is not doable. And I, so I think we're much more likely to spread the word and inspire people looking at more realistic solutions. So speaking of zero waste, low waste and sustainability, what place does ESG have in some of your perspectives and, and what you share with investors and, and what they might need to know about working with clients? I am a skeptic of ESG for a number of reasons. I think the, the lack of a consistent definition, I know we might technically get there, but I think the main misconception among folks about ESG is people believe that it is E and S and G, when in fact it is E or S or G. And I use the example in wallet activism of the Spanish petroleum company Repsol that is on almost every European ESG index or fund list because they're incredibly transparent. So they, they get a good score on the G, on the governance, and they have a really diverse board and they do some good community stuff. So they get a good social score. But obviously they're a petroleum company. They're pumping fossil fuels out of the ground, which are the, the biggest source of, of carbon emissions and the biggest driver of climate change. So that's something that I think a lot of folks, when they find that out, they go, oh, well, then this is all just greenwashing. Even though there are, are some likely very good products in the space, I think it's important to give folks a different set of tools or, you know, I think 
we, we always need to be striving for better transparency so that you can see really what's in a fund and not just have to take someone's word for it that ESG means it's, it's good. Yeah. I think one of your books, you talk about the efforts to get rid of public smoking. I talk about smoking in the context of helping people understand externalities because that's a big problem with our consumer culture is that I believe everything we buy, and I would include a lot of the financial services <laughs> products in that, like almost everything we buy is priced too cheaply in the sense that it doesn't really reflect the environmental cost, the climate cost. It doesn't reflect the cost of exploited labor that goes into making almost every manufactured product that we buy. And so thinking about the externalities and all that goes in it, I think is really useful for helping people right-size their consumption, which then also ties into right-sizing the amount they need to save and invest to be able to retire. You know, it, it's all linked together in the same chain. And so I think with smoking, people understand secondhand smoke very quickly. It's like the price of a pack that a smoker pays is not reflective of the impact to everyone who breathes that secondhand smoke. It's it's not even reflective of the price to that smoker directly. Mm -hmm. It doesn't pay for their health care. It, do, you know, it doesn't pay for all those things. So I think that's a useful example for thinking about how our stuff now is priced. Our stuff now is priced like packs of cigarettes 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and we need it to be priced maybe a little closer to packs today, which I know in a time of high inflation is not a popular thing to say, uh -huh. <laughs> but that could be one upside of this inflation is that it's caused a lot of folks to right size some of their consumption. And if perhaps we keep those prices where they are, it might allow us to backfill with better environmental practices, better labor practices, better pay for a lot of low paid workers. So there could be some opportunities there. That is possibly a big reason why advisors and others don't want to go there because it can quickly become extremely complex. What would you say to advisors who are working with clients who may want to like try to save the world and, and the advisor is trying to also help them balance financial goals that are very specific? Okay. So here is the thing that I will say that might be most controversial of all, although I did just oh, say high inflation <laughs> can be good. So I don't know if I can top that, but I think the biggest thing that I, I would say is advisors should not assume that every client, especially younger ones, wants to make the highest returns they can. I think a lot of clients, particularly millennials and Gen Z and some young Gen X like me, don't actually care about getting the very best return and aren't even concerned about trying to match the S&P. You know, it's, it's often I'm willing to lose a couple of those points if it means that I can do something truly impactful. And, you know, I think we, we get a bit, I don't know, lazy perhaps with the term impact investing and don't always look at what that impact is. And often that impact is I feel better and I sleep better at night when we could actually be looking at the impact on communities that have historically been affected the most by things like environmental racism, bad climate policy, bad social policy, worker exploitation, all those things. But I think it's worth asking that question. If someone comes in and says, you know, I'm really concerned about climate change, I'm really concerned about social injustice, and I don't want to support that, I think the next question naturally needs to be, great, what are your expectations for returns? And maybe you have part of the portfolio that's zero return, that's focused on community reinvestment and, and some of the models that are out there, and then you have the portion that is focused on returns. There are great options emerging, too, that are actually pretty typically invested. They're invested in the fossil fuel companies and big tech and a lot of folks who maybe bristle at if you care about things like climate change or social justice, but then the firms who 
have started those funds are committed to playing an active role in the voting process. Mm. And like engine number one, who led the effort to get Exxon to put, you know, get three climate focused directors on their board. They have an ETF called vote where it holds all those companies who a lot of progressives would tell you you should boycott or not own, but then they go in and they take an extremely active role. And I'm not endorsing that. I don't do due, due diligence. Obviously, that, that's the advisor's job. Uh, but there are lots of great examples like that where you could hold those things, but do it in a way where you know that you holding them is being used to push for better things. It it stands to reason that with the amount of information and the different attributes that an investor might want to consider, that activist investors could perhaps benefit even more from working with an advisor. Would you advocate for working with an advisor to help? Yeah, and I think it has to start with a little bit of rebranding around the term activist investor, Mm. because for so long that has meant more like really a, a hostile takeover. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yep. By someone trying to squeeze a bunch of value out. But I'm, I'm trying to push to think of it differently, to think of it more like what engine number one did with Exxon and what also happened at Chevron. And, you know, there, there've been some great examples and other folks are working to do similar things with the big banks, you know, the deposit banks. There is a, a lot of money to be made by some advisors who really focus on this, who say, my whole thing is I'm going to be equipping activist investors with the knowledge to make that happen, figuring mm-hmm. out how do you go to a shareholder meeting? How do you put a proposal before the shareholders? How do you go meet with the company in advance of it to try to figure out what they might go for? Or how do you meet with the institutional investors who are the largest shareholders of every publicly traded company so that maybe you can get them on board to support your initiative? I mean, that's that's work that a lot of folks want to do. And I think we're going to see an increasing number of resources for folks. But I think for advisors looking to grow their business, I think there's a big opportunity for some folks. Are there resources for advisors to help them with that process? In general, if you have clients who are focused on a social justice focus, the biggest opportunity right now is to buy into debt funds that specifically try to finance projects in disinvested communities. If you're looking more at the environmental or climate focus, a lot of what's out there are bonds funding clean energy infrastructure. And those can often be hard to identify but there are folks who are helping to package this stuff. So just some examples are C-Note, who's based in Oakland, California. They specifically do cash and fixed income, and they're they're working with community development financial institutions, CDFIs. Some of you may be familiar with that term. And it's at scale today for retail. So individual investors can go sign up with them. Advisors can sign up. They do some institutional. Calvert Impact Capital has something called the Community Investment Note or the Note. That's another fixed income fund, and that's accessible through most brokerage accounts, which I think is pretty exciting. That's been a hard thing with all the custodianship requirements. We talked a little bit about Engine Number One and, and their Vote ETF. They also have another one called NetZ that has a bit higher fees. Vote is really great low fees that honestly is up there with the lowest fee index funds. NetZ is, is higher fees, but they specifically look at the folks who are focused on the, the clean energy transition. And then others, Adesina Social Capital has a global social justice ETF, Just Futures Retirement. I'm really excited about. They're going to be launching a product for 401k and 403b holders next year, because I think that's the next frontier is how do we get some of this stuff into people's retirement plans? Yeah. And then they've also got a retail platform coming later. 
Seed Commons is a great organization for folks who are looking for hyper-local projects. They have a network of projects all over the country that you can fund through debt. So I think a lot of people in the activist space are starting to understand that they need to speak the language of capitalism a little better. You wrote in Bloomberg in June that millennials are fed up with ESG. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about that. I think people are frustrated that there was this thing, it was supposed to be the answer, and then they realized that every fund can set its own ESG metrics. And by their own metrics, they could be doing great, but they're actually contributing a lot of negativity to the world according to that person's values. And so I think there's skepticism of that. I do think that folks are getting more savvy at spotting greenwashing and it's really everywhere you look. And so it's, there's plenty of that in ESG. And I think there's also, we have to acknowledge a conflict of interest in that the people who are packaging ESG funds together and setting the metrics are also really hoping you're going to invest in their fund and they're going to make a whole bunch of money off you. I know a lot of folks are working on creating tools that let people make better assessments and see which ESG funds actually live up to their promise. Transparency is just the, the most important thing. So taking the, uh, the economist view that we should all focus on the E and not worry about the S and, and G so much, how much do you think policy is going to solve those problems versus how investors vote with their dollars? I don't think we're going to see major climate legislation again for a while. And so I think that we need to keep modest expectations about policy, this idea that it's policy or it's individual choices, or this idea that, well, we can we can boycott a company or we can buy shares in them and then do a shareholder initiative. It's like, no, no, this is, this is an all of the above moment. It's being mindful of what we buy, but I think more than what we buy, how much we buy, you know, just understanding that folks who are wealthy in the U.S. or Canada or, you know, rich countries are really having an outsized impact on both climate and the the conditions we force on other humans through exploitation to buy the stuff that we love. Looking at kind of a little of everything of can we buy less generally? Can we stay in our jobs less time to create more opportunity? Can we be mindful about where our money lives, both deposits and investments? Can we do a better job with philanthropy? Can we pay attention to where we live? And if that's having a gentrifying impact or for folks who are interested in real estate investing, are we doing that investing in a way that's actually creating good homes for people and not just trying to squeeze money out of communities that are already being squeezed? For folks who do have financial means, we, we have more responsibility to do more of these things. But nonetheless, I mean, no one can do everything. So it's looking at what fits in your life. And then as I always try to do, just striving to get a little better over time. Before we go to listener questions, you mentioned philanthropy. I mentioned Bill Gates in one of our discussions. What's your view on his efforts for health and for environment? Yeah, I mean, I think Bill Gates, through his foundation, has poured an enormous amount of money into particularly Africa and parts of Asia and some of the developing world. I just generally have a problem with billionaire philanthropy overall. We've decided to create a tax code in which instead of taxing people properly on their wealth or their high income, we've decided to let them get tax breaks and create these large perpetual foundations that then can set social policy in a a huge way. And, And in the U.S. as well, you know, Gates Foundation has put a lot of money into education in the U.S. and has really dictated the way that a lot of schools function. And that was never put to the voters. There's never been any accountability where you can say, well, I don't like what's happening. Who can I vote out of office? It's less about him and more just about the general practice of big philanthropy and letting folks use these tax-sheltered foundations to to set our social policy without our input. 
a lot of the stuff that Gates funds, the U.S. government also funds. So knowing that the biggest funder of your kid's classroom is an unaccountable billionaire, I don't think that's a great system. You should have some local control. So that's, that's what I'd argue for is just get it into the tax pipeline. All right, we got some good questions. With healthcare costs rising well above CPI, how can investors, particularly those with chronic or debilitating diseases, prepare for a long or early retirement? I'm a huge fan of treating early retirement and traditional retirement as two separate phases of life and planning and saving for them separately so that you're saving a fairly substantial pot that's in just standard taxable investment accounts and to some extent in cash accounts. And it's building out a, a bit more of a complicated model to make sure that you have enough saved to cover health care. And it does seem that at this point, the Affordable Care Act is going to stick around. It's good to get a sense of the types of tax credits that are available. And I know a lot of folks who sort of reverse engineer their income, which you can do if you're living off investments, you can decide how much to sell so that you fit under certain thresholds so that your insurance stays affordable. With healthcare, there's a lot of room there to wiggle, but that often gets left out of the conversation, which is just too bad. And if you can marry someone from the EU and move over there, that's really your best plan. <laughs> Backup plan. Do fire advocates need advisors? I advise everybody to at least one time go to a, a fee-only planner and get an overall consultation. At least double check your math, look at your assumptions. It has such a DIY spirit. I think a lot of fire folks aren't interested in having all their assets under management and paying high fees to do that. But if someone has offerings that are somewhere in the range of the index funds, I think there are folks who say, I can do this and financially I can make it work, but this just seems really scary to me. And I think those are, those are great folks to talk to. And it's, it's trusting that their assets are going to build up quickly because I've talked to several advisors who say, well, that's not enough money for me to want to work with someone. And I think they're going to get to millions of dollars. It's just, yeah. it's going to take them a little time, but they're going to get there quickly. Yeah. Yesterday, Christine was talking at um, one of the breakouts about hourly only financial advisors. So they, they are out there mm -hmm. and it's a way to, uh, you can agree on how much you're going to spend up front you know exactly how much and there's no ongoing fees. So. This is something I've, I've started thinking of is for advisors to have like a, a side practice of hourly, almost like your individual corporate social responsibility or your CSR, where you're trying to maybe be more inclusive or give advice to people whose assets wouldn't qualify them normally to work with you to manage their portfolio. But there's still an opportunity there to do some good and help people be better prepared. Retirement crisis is no small thing. It's affecting a huge number of people. And so that, that could be your one way that you do some public service. What advice would you give to the uninitiated investor who's excited about the idea of values investing, but is not yet knowledgeable about the fundamentals? I think the biggest things to know are, one, you don't need a complicated portfolio. Like know thyself. If, if you know that that will feel overwhelming, having something very simple going with a couple of well-diversified index funds, that's a perfectly good way to go. It's also knowing that there are folks out there who want your money and are not necessarily doing as much good as they say, but there are also folks out there who are helping you figure that out. And I know um, that Morningstar has the Investable World platform that, that will help with that a lot. Good tools are coming out every day that are helping see through a lot of that. You mentioned gentrification. What are ways real estate investors can promote growth without displacement in cities? 
a lot of the focus is on, well, how can you increase your cap rate so that you get the highest possible ratio of rent to purchase price? And it has folks saying, well, well, let's all buy in Memphis, which is a really cheap place to buy, but we can get good rents. And, and don't talk about the fact that Memphis is one of the blackest cities in the country and one of the historically most marginalized in so many ways. Things like that where you go, okay, is this really the community that you want to be getting rich off of? These are conversations that need to happen. And so I think thinking about it in that lens, it becomes easier than to say, okay, what am I ultimately trying to do? Am I trying to just retire early as quickly as possible and accumulate a portfolio of a lot of rental properties? Or am I actually trying to be a good citizen and provide a good home for someone and not exploit them? Things like that, I think, are, are just good questions to ask yourself. And if you have the stomach to go with a little bit more generosity, I think you're much less likely to be one of the bad guys. That's a good lead into this next question. Um, how can advisors help nudge clients from the obsession of acquiring and toward using their wealth to fund experiences and charitable giving? Honestly, I wish I knew because I think that's hard. <laughs> I've seen a lot of folks and I've not yet seen anyone who lived a really restricted life to save then turn around and suddenly spend all this money. I have to believe there are creative solutions out there, but I think it's important to recognize that you're just really fighting psychology and ingrained mindset and someone who's a good saver is going to naturally struggle to start spending. One more from the audience. Great point on clients not always looking for the highest returns. Advisors need a way to show impacts of choices and progress toward goals, how can we do that? If you're doing a dashboard for clients or you're doing you know, some kind of portfolio visualization to show, okay, here are your returns here, putting the impact metrics in there, that makes them excited about what they're doing. And also, I think if you show people that you get them, that you get their concerns, you get their values, and you're also showing them results in more than one dimension, so yeah. it's not just bottom line, that's the kind of stuff that makes people want to stay with you for a long time and recommend all their friends. That's, you know, who they want to stick around with. Well, great. Thank you, Tanya, Thanks for being so here. Thanks so much for being here. I really yeah. appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. This was a blast. <laughs> 